Good morning. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1. If you're a guest with us, you can turn to the back of the bulletin and there's a, uh, an outline that you can um, use that maybe help you to follow along with our lesson. A few years ago on um, Thanksgiving break, um, my son, Jake, expressed interest in our family heritage, um, trying to trace back our family name. I think I mentioned this in a Bible class. Not sure I've shared this in a sermon before, but the only thing I knew about the Owens name is that uh, my dad said we came from Wales, but not totally sure about that. Um, so seeing the girls were getting ready for Thanksgiving, cooking in the kitchen. Jake and I were sitting at the island. He opened his MacBook, and my goal was I hoped that we could maybe get on Ancestry.com and get at least back to Wales, if that's indeed where our family came from. Jake was a little more ambitious. He wanted to know, did we come from Ham, Sham, or Japheth? And so uh, we signed in, and we got going, and so he was typing away on the computer, and I just had like a little uh, legal pad, and I thought, I'm just going to take notes and see if we can get, you know, see our country of origin. I only went back a few generations. I don't know, it was great-great-great-grandfather, and there was this little document, PDF, that showed. If you've done this on Ancestry, you know how that works. Um, and it was a business license for, again, my great-great-great-grandfather, but still in North Alabama, it was for a... Um, house of entertainment. <laughs> and we thought about that. We thought, what would that be? And everything we thought of was not good. <laughs> you know, was it a bar? Was it a saloon? Was it a brothel? I don't know. But what happened for us is like early on in our search, we had a good dose of reality. Like every, fi every family has somebody, you know? Uh, we didn't have to go very far before we found our somebody. Uh, we did trace it back to Wales and actually found some people of some significance. <clears throat> but still, what about my great, great, great grandpimp or, or whatever you call it? You know, I just, I just couldn't get past that. You know, I just thought, hmm. But you're laughing at me, but you've got one too. Don't you? Every family's got somebody that you wish that maybe were not in your family, or even now maybe you've got a gathering and you've got that cousin Eddie, and you're thinking, do we really have to invite him? Wondering about that. Somebody took this picture when they were out shopping. Maybe you've seen this before. It's called Ant Killer. <clears throat> Anybody need a stocking stuffer? Somebody you want to take out? See, all of us got weak links in our family, and if you don't, well, it might just be you, you know? So you got to think about that, too. Do you know that Jesus had some people in his family history that you would think the author of the Bible would want to leave some of those people out, some of those weak links but the truth is, the story of Jesus did not meet the expectations of so many. And it really even starts with the genealogy. So let's look at Jesus' unexpected genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 opens like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
I'm not going to read all the way through verse 17, the whole genealogy, because that's not the most exciting thing that we like to read out of Scripture. If you're reading it, you tend to kind of read over the names too. I know that's kind of part of it. Because it seems to be a dry, boring way to introduce Jesus to the world, at least to us, from our perspective. But here's what we need to know. Matthew wrote his gospel primarily, at least originally, to a Jewish audience. And because of that, the genealogy was the best way to begin the story of Jesus. Now, genealogies were critical in Jewish society for determining inheritance, uh, for legal matters, even for priestly roles. When the Jews were returning from exile, many of them who knew of their family, they were from the priestly line. They were coming back to Jerusalem, and so they wanted to be involved with that again. Ezra chapter 2, verse 62, it talks about the son of the priest sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood. I think the best way maybe we can think about that would be for you as an American citizen to not have a social security number. And if you've got one, you don't think about it. But if you don't have one, it causes all kinds of trouble. Or if you travel internationally, you don't have a passport or lose your passport. You're in trouble because that document opens doors and closes doors. And that's really what the genealogy served for the Jewish people as well. Devoted Jews who were well-versed in the Old Testament teachings about the coming of the Messiah, they knew that the Messiah was not going to appear out of nowhere. And anybody who claimed to be the Messiah, one of the things he must do would be to show that he was from the right family line, the correct family line. The true Messiah would be legitimately connected to God's people, specifically to David. He was that one that people wanted to know. Did you come from David? So a well-documented genealogy was proof of the claim. That's why when Matthew opens his gospel, there is no once upon a time. Or let me tell you a story. That's why he opens up the book of the genealogy. That's what he says. This is real history. You can trace it back. You know these names. You know these people. You know the story. In fact, look at verse 16 and 17. It says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, we don't need to read this Matthew chapter 1 as a simple family tree or genealogy because Matthew is really presenting more than that. That's what I want to talk about today. The story of Jesus is spectacular but at the same time, it was not what people were expecting. So for the rest of December, what I want us to do is just study Matthew chapters 1 and 2. This morning, we're going to begin with the genealogy. Now, typically, again, reading through somebody's ancestry, it's important to the one who does the research and their family, but everybody else, not so much. But I want to call your attention to the notes in the bulletin and make four observations. Now, these are not original to me. But from Matthew's gospel, he shares things about who this Jesus is, and he starts here in chapter 1. So I want to share this because it helped me, and I think it will help you as well. 
The first is this, God came in the flesh. Matthew says God came in the flesh. Jesus was a real person with a real family, with real ancestors. So what you have in the story of Jesus is deity poured into humanity. That's what Todd was talking about when he was mentioning about our, our, our communion and trying to realize who Jesus was when he was here. God in the flesh, born of a woman by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice that Matthew is clear regarding Joseph's status as the legal father of Jesus, but not the biological father. Look at verse 16 again. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus. Now, legally, under the Jewish system, Jesus would be Joseph's son. And there's verses in the Bible that mention him as the son. But here's the challenge for you and me. I want to make sure we don't miss this. Matthew explains that the eternal God was once an embryo conceived of the Holy Spirit. That the one that Colossians talks about holding the cosmos together was an infant who needed to be held. God became flesh. The wonder of the incarnation is just that. It's a wonder. It's wonderful. It's amazing. That's why over and over again, you've witnessed it. When someone wants to become a child of God, they're ready to be baptized. We will ask them the question, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Because that's the important question. Do you believe? John wrote it this way, 1 John 4, 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So Matthew is saying, just right here in this opening genealogy, Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Jesus became one of us. Remember John's gospel, the way he opens, he makes the very point. Verse 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God came in the flesh to work out the plan. Now, again, this is important to know because Matthew helps us to see Jesus is not an afterthought. This is not heaven's plan B. God didn't look at the world and say, well, nothing's worked yet, so what else can we come up with? Jesus has always been the center and the focus of history. So don't misunderstand the story of Jesus. It's not that God ran out of options, and so he says, okay, we've got to come up with something new, and therefore we have the New Testament, but this wasn't the plan all along. Jesus' coming was the plan all along. But also notice this. Matthew's genealogy is not meant to be comprehensive. But that doesn't mean it's not correct or that it's full of errors. Jesus' genealogy, according to Matthew, is different than Luke's. And you've probably studied that before if you studied the genealogies trying to make sense of this. Instead, Matthew carefully arranges it into three groups of 14 names each. And the way you can understand that is understanding that in the Bible, when you read that somebody is the son of or the father of, 
What that really just means is a descendant of. So you could be the grandfather or grandfather or the grandson or grandson. And so it is still correct, even though some of the names in Matthew's genealogy are not included. So that's why you have the 14 and the 14 and the 14. But this was not only to show the lineage, but it was also, according to one commentary, made it easier for people to remember. This 14, 14, and 14. And that was especially key when you had people who maybe didn't have a copy of the Bible. Or maybe they were illiterate. And they wanted to know, they wanted to remember. Matthew's genealogy shows that from every period of Israel's history, God had a sovereign plan to one day send Jesus. Look at John 8, 56 and 58. You remember this. Jesus is talking to the Jews. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. God has been working his sovereign plan all along, even when it didn't look that way. Even when it might appear that, that he's not working at all, he's been the directing the affairs of the world, especially in this little known, small nation of people called Israel. Now, here's something else to note. The Greek word for genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, 1, this is the book of the genealogy. That word really means Genesis. This is the book of the Genesis, and that's key because that's the way Genesis starts. Like that phrase is used several times in the Bible, the book of the beginning. And that's what he's saying here. This is the book of the beginning. It all starts with Jesus. So we read these names, a few we know, some we don't know much about, but God knows every name and God knows every circumstance that brought this plan together. God came in the flesh to work out the plan to bring in a kingdom. Kingdom is a key word in the book of Matthew. We're studying this in our Wednesday night precept class, and we're marking every time the word kingdom appears, and it's over and over and over again. But here's a question. If this book is of the beginning, why didn't Matthew start with Adam? I probably would have, and you probably would have. In fact, did you notice that Matthew mentions the name David before he mentions Abraham? Why did he do that? Son of David, son of Abraham. Well, there's a reason for that. Matthew is connecting this coming Jesus to the most precious promise to the people of Israel. That one day, a king would come through the line of David. And this one would be Jesus, the Messiah. God spoke to David about his son Solomon, 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. Look at the words here. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Sometimes as we think about the birth of Jesus, we remember Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. And notice this, verse 7, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
That was the promise. And that's what the Jews were hanging on to. So when Matthew says, son of David, it's like, ding, ding, ding. They're connecting to that because that's what they were listening for. That's what they were looking for. And barely into the second chapter, the Magi come on the scene. Travel to Jerusalem, ask chapter 2, verse 2, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? He's still a baby, but they're looking for a king because he is bringing a kingdom. So in these two opening chapters, Matthew is establishing Jesus' right to reign. Matthew makes the case this is not just the story of the birth of a baby or just baby Jesus. This is the arrival of King Jesus. And Matthew wants those who read this gospel now to see what everybody's going to see when Jesus returns, and that is how much this is true, that he is a king. God came in the flesh to work out the plan to bring in a kingdom that leaves no one out. Again, that's not what they were expecting. As you read the Gospels, you observe the Jews were expecting a Messiah to be the ruler of a physical kingdom, to make them a, a dominant, independent nation again, to release them from the Roman oppression, to finally make them free, a kingdom where those who were not of God, the unfit, the unrighteous, would be left out. Matthew also records some details in the family tree that you wouldn't expect. Again, this is another way where it was an unexpected birth. So you would think, here is this coming king, this God in the flesh. He would come from the ideal family with the ideal family tree, right? Just the opposite. Again, I cannot stress how important ancestry was to the Jews. Let me share. Uh, e. Michael Green wrote a commentary, The Message of Matthew, The Kingdom of Heaven. He wrote this. Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote toward the end of the first century A.D., begins his autobiography by relating his own pedigree. And then he wrote how Herod the Great was so embarrassed that as a half-Jew, half-Edomite, his name was not in the official genealogies, that he ordered their destruction so that no one could claim a purer pedigree than his own. That's how important ancestry was to the Jews. Now, not only does Matthew not omit some of the less than names, the weak links in the chain, even more shocking is who he does include. You'll notice in verse 2, it says, Father of, Father of, Father of, Father of. It just goes through all the way through verse 17. Jewish genealogies followed the father's line. Again, mostly because of legal status, inheritance status. You, you, you know that of Jews. You know, the inheritance went to the oldest firstborn son. That's just the way that culture was. So including women into the genealogy was not the norm. But Matthew doesn't give us the norm. In fact, he doesn't just include one woman. He lists four but it's not even the four best, you might say, or the most spectacular, or, or women of incredible faith who did everything right. In fact, let me just walk you through this. Verse 3, look in your Bibles. There it is. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. 
Tamar. Remember that name? Maybe it's been a while since you've read Genesis. Tamar was treated poorly. Her husband died. She was left destitute. That day in culture had no recourse. So what does she do? She dresses up like a prostitute and deceives her own father-in-law. That's in there. Did Matthew have to list her? Verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You know Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the harlot. Kind of like a, a last name. That's what we think of her. Verse 5, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth was a good woman. We know that from what the Bible tells us about her. But she's not Jewish. Why would a non-Jew woman be listed in a male genealogy? In fact, not only was she not Jewish, she was Moabite. Do you remember where the Moabites came from? Again, back in Genesis, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife turned back. You remember that? Turned into a pillar of salt. And because of that, Lot had a child through his daughter, Moab. This is the family line that Ruth comes from. Not exactly the kind of example that you were to pass along or bring attention to. And then verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been with Uriah's wife. Matthew includes Bathsheba, but not even mentioned by name. You can think what you want to about that. But by virtue of gender, race, morals, these women are all outsiders. These women are all less than. They were not expected to be listed in the Messiah's genealogy. But even though their past was not up to par, God includes every one of them because he used them in his plan. See, just the opposite of Herod the Great, who just says, well, just destroy all the genealogies then, Matthew is including the not-so-pleasant details. Now, why? Why does he do that? Matthew wants us to know that the Messiah came out of a mess. He just didn't just come for sinners. He came from sinners. His family is just like our family. It's not perfect. And he didn't come to skip over them or kick them out or not invite them to a gathering. In fact, he came to include them all. It was so unexpected that their mess would be become part of the message. It's not just the best ones mentioned, who were always full of faith and always did the right thing. It was the messy ones, too. One of the most beloved Christmas songs features an outsider, a reject. And according to history.com, it started out as an advertising uh, a gimmick, if you will, or assignment. 1939, Montgomery Ward, they asked an executive, Robert May, to write a poem that their store Santa Claus could give to the children. So he wrote a poem, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, appeared in a little booklet. They published it. It was a hit. 1939. By 1945, Montgomery Ward had given away six million copies of that little book. Four years later, 1949, May's brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, wrote the music. It was turned down by Bing Crosby, Dinah Shore. Gene Autry finally recorded it. 
Today, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, one of the top-selling Christmas songs of all time. Why? Now, when I was reading this, I just thought of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer as the, the, the movie. You know, I thought that was the beginning of it. Not so. But why do we love it? We love it today. Some people say it's because of Rudolph's courage. He's the hero of the story. But think about this. The real beauty of the story of Rudolph is grace. Rudolph, you know, Santa chooses the outsider, Rudolph, despite the fact that he's rejected by everybody else. He was the outsider because of his defect, that shiny nose. It was not like everybody else growing up. He was not allowed to play in all the reindeer games. So all of his life, he's out. He's shunned. He's the outsider. He'll never be accepted. And then one day, the fog rolls in. And who does Santa choose to lead? That defect, that reject. His weakness became his strength. Sounds a little bit like what Paul wrote about, doesn't it? It's a story of grace. We love stories like that, don't we? We love it because what we know is people can be cruel. People can shun others. There's something about our base selves to exclude people. It happens now. It happened when Jesus was born. Think about it. Being born of a woman who got pregnant before she was married And living with that, all the talks, all the look, that's why his birth was so unexpected. He came as a king to establish a kingdom that would leave no one out. And here's where Satan is lying so much today. People feel like they're excluded, but that's not the message of Jesus. That's not what his kingdom is about. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Key word is whoever, whoever, that's us, that's you, that's me. Jesus came to establish a kingdom where out is in. So let me close with this. Jesus' rebirth revealed an unexpected theology. No one was expecting this kind of kingdom. No one was expecting this kind of king. Like nobody was expecting anything of what Jesus was like. He did not meet their expectations at all. But what we know is he exceeded every way. See, scandal was not just a part of Jesus' story. It was the point of his story. His family tree is a scandal. The one who's writing this, Matthew, is a tax collector, a former tax collector. There's scandal with a capital S, but they're not taken out. They're written in. One thing I love about the Bible is even those great heroes of faith or heroines of faith, what you also read are times where they didn't believe or times where they blew it, times where they were taken down, times where their choice They weren't looking to God, but it's in there for all to see. We know the details, and that's the wonder of the kingdom. God knows it all. Jesus came to redeem us from that. So Matthew is writing the book of the beginning, the book of the Genesis, 
the genealogy, he's basically saying, if you're out, you're welcome in. Welcome to the family. Because here's the point. God has seen it all. He knows your sin. He knows your faith. He knows your victories. But he also knows your doubts. He knows your disbelief. He knows your pride. He knows your selfishness. He knows it all. And there is no part of who you are or what you've done or your past that he cannot redeem. Regardless of what label you were given as a child or where you came from or your family or ways you blew it, he came to buy you back. I wonder if we understand the value of forgiveness. One author explained it like this. Some of you remember this angst. When you had to type on a typewriter, especially like a paper. Now, you needed to be a good typist because when you were typing, now for some of you who are a bit younger than me, a typewriter worked by having this little piece of metal that is on a ball or maybe just a little arm that would hit a, a ink ribbon and kind of uh, onto the white paper, okay? So not only did it leave the, um, the print, uh, but it was like permanent. So you could be typing all along. You get three-fourths down to the page and you're rocking and rolling and all of a sudden you mess up. And so you have to pull it out and start over again. Some of you remember, oh, I see grimaces. You remember that. You hadn't thought about it in a while, have you? And then one day, they came out with whiteout, liquid paper. It was great. You don't know what that is, some of you. It's like nail polish. It's only white in a little bottle. And you could scroll up your paper, go over the blotch, scroll it right down, and type over it. Sometimes there were sheets. Remember those? You could just kind of back up and type the mistake over it again, and, and they would be disappeared. But here's the limitation to those. You could finish typing, and you pull it out. You could still see that white blotch. Do you remember that? You could still see it. Or... Even you could hold it up to the light, and you can see your mistake. It was still there. And then God created computers. <laughs> Actually, it's the delete key or the backspace key. God's had it all along. And what's so wonderful about that backspace is that it's gone. Now, the truth is, with some sins and mistakes, there's consequences you live with. And there is that scab that you still see, okay? Or you can hold it up and people can still see where you messed up. And you have to live with that. But not in heaven. With God, it is backspace. It is deleted. It is as if it never happened. And I wish that we would all be able to grasp that truth. God came because he knows you've got mistakes. And the only way for you to live with him is for those to be wiped clean. So God came in the flesh to work out a plan to bring in a kingdom that includes everyone. What he wants to know is do you believe? If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, we want to give you an opportunity to say yes so we're going to sing a song of invitation. So you can make today your day of saying, I don't want to live with my mistakes anymore.
We've all got them. But Jesus is the only one who can completely delete them. If you're ready for your sins to be washed away in baptism, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We encourage you to come while we stand and sing.